If I can mention Billy Joel most days at work, I reckon we can mention ice cream vans twice on the podcast. That's that's okay. <laughs> And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories, usually with a special guest. This month, we're reading the short story collection, Father Christmas Fake Beard. And as I guess people younger than me might say, it totally slays. (laughs) And this month, it's just us. Welcome, Liz. And welcome, Ben. Should we uh, introduce each other? Ask each other how we um, got to know Terry Pratchett? I don't know. It's strange not having a... (laughs) It is, it is, but it's just how it worked out. It's been a very busy part of the year. We've had a lot going on. We've just had the 40th anniversary of Discworld and The Colour of Magic, which was exciting. It was nice. It was nice to do something a bit different for the uh, 40th. I hope, listener, you listened to that episode. I hope you enjoyed it. It feels early to get Christmassy, but, you know, there's that whole thing, and we'll touch on this because, you know, it's there's a story based on the song in the book, but the 12 days of Christmas... We think of it like an advent calendar, but it was actually 12 days from Christmas, not up to Christmas. Oh. Yeah. I don't, I don't actually know much about that tradition because it's not one that has survived apart from in a song. But, uh, yeah. I did know that 12 days after the Christmas, you're supposed to take the Christmas tree down because my, my dad's very insistent on that. Like 12 days after Christmas, it all comes down. Otherwise it's not good. So are you a strict starting Christmas at a particular time household? Not really. And I think it was just like whenever it feels right and it's not quite Christmas Day, but I'm the older I got, the more it felt like we're just like, oh, it's December, it's time to put up the tree. And I think one year there was just a moment where my family looked at each other and we were like, maybe we should stop. Like, maybe not, do any of us like this? And everyone was kind of like, oh, I thought you liked this. And then a couple of years back, I went to my parents' house and they were just putting all the Christmas presents under a chair. Instead of a <laughs> under <tree>. a chair. <laughs> okay. I mean, look, that's weird. <laughs> that, is a, that is a strange. I used to have a very small Christmas tree when I lived in a share house without much room. And it was like a tiny little one. Like it was maybe 30, 40 centimeters high, like a little plastic one in a fake pot. And I would often joke that I would put that under the presents. I'd like (laughs) stick the presents (laughs) on top of it. But at least I had a tree. I feel like your parents could do that. That would be low effort. They wouldn't have to decorate it or anything. And it would be less weird than a chair. I mean, I think it was mostly to stop things from being a tripping hazard. It's like, oh, we'll just tuck them away Mm. under, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, no, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll pay that. They don't have a coffee table? I would have thought a coffee table would be more the thing. They do have a coffee table, but it's not the kind you can put things under. Does that make sense? It's like a solid coffee table. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Yeah. My, so my partner loves Christmas, has the sort of European Christmas traditions, is Finnish from the land of Santa Claus or Yalupuki, uh, that I'm, I've been trying to learn to pronounce it properly and I have got it wrong, I'm sure, but he lives there. He's from Lapland. That's where the North Pole bit is where Santa lives. So. You know, she's very Christmas and, and it starts on December one. You're not allowed to do anything Christmassy before the first of December, but then it's Christmas time. The lights go up, the tree goes up. And I was not a big Christmas person for a long time, but 
her joy for it has definitely infected me and now I get a lot of pleasure out of it. So, yeah. And I feel like a real Grinch being like, oh, you know, whatever. As in, the best thing about Christmas is the fact that it is when people get together, I think. Like, that's mm. the main thing. And for me, I don't really mind if it's on Christmas Day or not. It's just because, like, generally people sort of accept that's a time that you hang out with people you care about. Mm. And so the weeks surrounding it is just kind of a really nice time of making space for people. And I, I like that about Christmas. Yeah. Or, or the holiday season in general. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the really universal part. One of the interesting things about reading this book, Father Christmas Fake Beard, and, and I've read a few of Terry's Christmassy stories before, because uh, he wrote a lot of them, which makes sense. I think I said this in the previous episode, but, you know, when you're writing children's stories every week or every month, well, you're going to have to write Christmas themed ones, like at least a few times a year. So, uh, he wrote heaps and it's a very British version of Christmas, which is interesting because, you know, our Christmas tradition largely comes from that, but is also heavily influenced by the American Christmas tradition because of all the media around it. And it's uniquely Australian because we have to adapt it to the fact that it's the middle of summer <laughs> Christmas time here. So, you know, we have all these, like so many things we've imported to this country make no sense in a non-European Southern Hemisphere context, but we do them anyway and it's dumb. We should have our own, <laughs> we should have our own traditions. We should invent new ones. We should learn more about the ones that were here before we came. Yeah, so it's it's interesting to see this very, very English take on Christmas, down to the fact of what you call Santa Claus, you know? Oh, as in because it's Father Christmas, is that? Yeah, that's a very British thing. And it's interesting to me that when I was researching these stories, because I was interested, because like uh, the new collection, A Stroke of the Pen, has got a section in the back that tells you where all the stories came from. And there's little notes in a blink of the screen that do the same. But this, because this is for kids, they don't care where the stories came from. So that, that information's not in there. So I looked them up and a lot of these had slightly different titles. And some of them used Santa Claus when they were originally published, particularly the slightly later ones from the 70s or 80s. But here they've all been changed to Father Christmas. So I wonder if there's like a, been a cultural shift back to saying Father Christmas instead of Santa Claus because it's seen as more American to say Santa Claus. Is Santa Claus originally from German though? Like, is that like? I don't actually know. I think, I think the original German version was Sinterklaas, which is probably where mm. Santa Claus comes from. And there's, I mean, there's so many, there's so many variations on the tradition. Um, what is that like? Klaus from the chimney? Uh, I'm, I'm not joking. I just, didn't, I just generally didn't look. No, I don't know. Time. I don't know the derivation of that. Yeah. That's, that is not the kind of research I did for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at the stories. I didn't research the origins of Christmas. Uh, I'd love to hear them. Like, if you know, like, please tell us. Please do. And there's so many great weird to us because we're, we're not used to them. There's nothing inherently weird about them than any of the things we do. But there's so many interesting, different Christmas traditions, particularly across Europe. And versions of them turn up all over the place. The Discworld, like Hogswatch has little bits of some of the different ones in them, but it's still mostly British Christmas in the way that the modern Discworld celebrates it. Hmm. Yeah. Just little things like the main European thing is you do everything on Christmas Eve, whereas here in Australia, the tradition is more that the real business of Christmas happens on Christmas Day. Like you get up early in the morning to open all your presents and then you have a big Christmas lunch because no one wants a big dinner at nighttime when it's hot, you know? Yeah. But you're usually having Christmas lunch at like 2 p.m. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because you've just been snacking on all the Christmas treats. But mm. I have gotten very into the European style 
we're going to cook all the traditional foods. We're going to have a nice dinner on Christmas Eve, and that's when we're going to open all the presents. Yeah. And it's useful for me, too, because I can do that with my partner's family, and then I call up my family on Christmas Day when they're doing it. So it all works out. Yeah, a friend of mine does Swedish Christmas every year now, which is quite fun. Hmm. That's on Christmas Eve as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should, we should get into this book. All right, let's talk about some Santa stories. You're Christmassy now, so I'm, I'm excited about this. So uh, just to give you context, listener, um, I don't know how many of you will have read this book, and I'm actually not sure if it's still in print because this is a slightly unusual book. So there's several collections of Terry Pratchett's early children's stories, and these are stories he was writing for newspapers uh, starting in the late 1960s all the way through to the 1980s he was doing this. And there's four of these books, but this one's a little bit weird because this one has some stories that have already been printed elsewhere. And we'll talk about that when we get to those stories. And it's shorter than the others a little bit. And it's fully illustrated. Like there's a lot of illustrations. So I've got the fancy hardcover edition, which has got full color illustrations. But has yours got the illustrations throughout this, the standard paperback one? Mine has illustrations throughout, but they're not in color. Yeah, I think that's the really the only difference apart from, you know, it's a hardcover it's also got this really nice, the end papers inside the hardcover are sort of this candy cane striped mm. red and white. <laughs> and then the book itself doesn't have anything on the front cover. It's just got the title on the spine. So it's a, it's a very nice book, but I don't know if it's still in print. The other three being, um, and we'll get to those eventually, The Witch's Vacuum Cleaner, The Dragons of Crumbling Castle, which is the first one, and uh, The Time Traveling Caveman, which was only came out a couple of years ago. They're all, I think they're all still in print, but I don't know about this one. So mm. uh, hopefully you can get it. But some of the stories you can read elsewhere anyway, and we'll we'll note that when we get to those. Ours were very easy to acquire. Like I got mine when I was on holiday in New Zealand. And Ben, where did you get yours? Uh, I got I got mine when I was on holiday in Hobart in Tasmania. Hmm. So just a normal way to get a book. <laughs> yeah, just go on holiday to somewhere else. It's a really nice bookshop. I'll share this in in the episode notes. One of the guys who ran the bookshop had bought the super deluxe illustrated edition of Good Omens and showed it to me. And I took a delightful photo of him that I shared on our Pratchett Instagram of him showing off the book and flipping us the bird (laughs) to say, I've got this. It's a limited edition of like a hundred or whatever. and You don't have it. But yes. Invalid. Yeah. Um, but look, let's, let's get into it. They, appropriately enough, the first story, and we'll do these in the order that they're in the book, but the first story is actually one of the later ones. It's almost the newest story in the whole book. It's from 1989, and it is called Father Christmas's Fake Beard, although yeah. that was not its original title. That makes sense because Father Christmas's Fake Beard is a catchy title, but I don't feel like a great one for this one. But, oh, no, wait, actually, it is great, and I have figured out why. Okay, you go with, explain what the original title <laughs> you was. You got it, you know. But, yeah, interestingly, when it was first <laughs> written and published, it was in the Western Daily Press. They did a, a Christmas TV extra, it was called, and this was, like, obviously a bonus bit of newspaper that came saying, here's all the cool TV shows that are on over Christmas, because uh, the, the Christmas TV special, big thing in the UK, all of the big TV shows do special episodes at Christmas time. And this came out just before Christmas, printed in 1989, and then it was also reprinted in the same paper, but a few years later in 1992. But they didn't use this title. They printed it under basically like a fake headline, as if it was real news. So the first time in 1989, it was Santa Claus's chaos when he behaves just like Father Christmas should in a toy shop's grotto. And then, <laughs> and then the other one in 1992 was Old St. Nicholas causes chaos in toy shop. Strange events in Santa's grotto send shivers running through department store. <laughs> Which 
I thought it was kind of delightful, but it's too long. You can't use that title in a in a book. It makes sense in a newspaper. You also could really shouldn't be using a headline that long in a newspaper, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suspect it was a headline and then like a subhead, but you know, I would love to see what that looks like. Surely someone out there knows. I mean, if we go to the right library, we can find a facsimile and look up what it looked like in the original paper. That would be pretty is cool. It, is there British Trove? There must be the equivalent. I mean, you, the British Library would surely have microfiche or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's worth looking up. Listener, if you know, if you've seen what it looked like, please let us know. We could find that. I'll have a look too. And if I can find anything, I'll put it in the episode notes, but I'm not sure we will find much for that. And this is um, hashtag PrattChat73 if you find it and want to send it to us. Liz, do you want to tell us what this story is about? Yes. So this is a delightful story where it's very clear from the beginning that Father Christmas has been employed to work as a department store Father Christmas un- until Christmas comes around. And it's done through a series of memos, like inter-office memos. So we learn a lot of interesting things about how it came about. Like the previous guy, um, it's all couch terms, but he's been stealing cameras. This guy, though, like they're like, we found a good guy. He will bring his own uniform and he doesn't even need the fake whiskers. So he's going to be all right. But then in a series of back and forth between like the temporary sales assistant, who is Mr. Nicholas, and the personnel manager and security, we find out that all sorts of chaos has been going on because Santa's not sticking to the rules. Like Father Christmas is um, letting children choose what toys they want and he's giving away things for free. And it sounds like the more it goes on, the more chaotic it seems things have gotten. Like you hear about like security reporting, seeing little faces around and the sound of toys being made and that kind of thing. And then... Mr. Nicholas has the audacity to want to take Christmas Eve off because he's about to start a new job. But who has a job that starts on Christmas Eve anyway? So (laughs) it's just, it's done very carefully, but it it is obvious what's happening, but it's just done in such a really nice way. Yeah. And just so passive aggressive in like snarky (laughs) office speak as well. (laughs) Yeah. Pratchett really knew what he was doing when it came to that sort of thing, didn't he? Mm. Uh, Worth saying too, I think that like a lot of the stories in this book and like a lot of his early stories, there's little things that crop up in his better known works. So for example, the store that this is all happening in is the Arnco Super Saver store. Mm. And Arnco is the modern name for Arnold Brothers Est 1903 from Truckers. And a lot of these stories in this book, as we'll get to, also happen in Blackberry. Although this, I don't think this one specifies, but that's fine. It's pretty, it's pretty fun. I do like that he says that, uh, he's from the north of Lapland. I, I, you know, my, my Finnish loving heart was like, yes, he is from Lapland. That's very, that's correct, Terry. Thank you. And there is a bit of a Lovecraftian feel to it as well, because it's like it's done sort of like a diary of like seeing a descent into madness. And it like <laughs> it finishes yeah. with Mr. Chan from the toy department ends up thinking he's a teapot. So it's like a wholesome children's version of a Lovecraft <laughs> story minus all the racism. Yes. Yes, it is. And in fact, I mean, and look, you know, there's even that bit at the start where Santa Claus says, I, I am, f- I'm from the north of Lapland. And the guy employing him is like, well, I'm, I assured him we're an equal opportunities employer. And besides, I'm not sure how you'd go about discriminating against someone from Lapland, even if you wanted to. Uh, yes. Um, well, well, I guess there's some. Well, people manage some, it though. Yeah. People do manage it. That's true. The whole thing, I mean, this also, this story is very clearly the inspiration for the sequence in Hogfather where death posing as the Hogfather turns up in the store, in the grotto, 
in Ankh-Morpork, which is very similar vibes to this. There's not too many of the same jokes because it's written in a very different way. And this predates that by a fair few years. So, mm. but there's a few, there's a few stories in here like that that get recycled mm. in Hogfather. But it, yeah, I like this one. He's clearly like cooking away these ideas for a bit. So, yeah. Well, yeah, and he's using a technique, um, like a, a fun technique of just all the memos, which is quite a good way to start, I think, as well, because mm-hmm. you realize it's going to be quite an off-the-wall sort of book, and he uses a lot of different ways to do that. So, yeah, yeah interesting. And I like the way they portray that in the book because it's fully illustrated. They've actually just drawn a piece of paper around the uh, – I say they, it's Mark Beach who illustrates a lot of the modern editions of Pratchett's children's books. But, yeah, he's just drawn a piece of paper around the text on the page so it looks like a, a note, which I thought was cute. Different fonts as well for different people. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's uh, there's also a theme in this story that comes back in several others where it's about the kinds of toys the kids want these days. And there is a little bit of, mm. you know, sort of old man yelling at Cloud about it. But also you can kind of feel the frustration. And it's kind of, again, you know, it's like when Death is talking to the kids and he doesn't realize what Hog's Watch is actually like for modern children. He's sort of just going by what he understands the Hogfather actually does from the stories. And this is exactly what's happening with the real Father Christmas in this story. But he's also, he's saying like, oh, they want all these things with batteries and like a Death Kill 3000 ray gun. And I, I don't like it. And that comes back in a couple of the other stories too. Yeah. Though he has a little bit more awareness than the store seems to in that they they have a whole thing of like the girls will have this and the boys will have that, whereas Santa is let or Father Christmas is letting the children choose their own toys. So like there's mm. levels of understanding children in this one. It's not necessarily all the same sort of Father Christmas in all of these stories, I'd argue. Yeah, I think that's true. There's sort of slightly different takes on him, isn't it? I think it's sort of like taking the idea of who Father Christmas is and trying to put different kind of comedic spins on him. Yeah. Mm. I'm realizing now that we're discussing it that every story that Father Christmas himself appears in, he feels like a different character to mm. me throughout this. And I guess it's because they were written over such a long period of time and the stories are all different. But I feel like this one we never see again. In fact, we actually never hear from him directly. No. In this one, it's all done through observation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of nice, like to see two other people going, who is this man? He thinks he's, he's doing Father Christmas wrong. And then he actually flew through a wall. He hit that last note where he's like, it's best if we just forget this ever happened. Because um, it couldn't possibly have happened. Yeah. It's very fun. It's very fun. And I was actually, I was reading this and I was thinking, oh, their memos, is that kind of be weird for modern kids? I'm like, no, nah, it's just going to sound like an email or a text message or something. No, that's fine. They get it. So, yeah, I, I yeah. like that one. And I think it was a good choice for the start of the collection, mm. I think, and to name the collection after it, even if they had to come up with a new name for it. Yeah, it plunges you straight into the, the energy of this collection. Yeah. Let's do the next one because it's a lot of fun. And, again, they do fun things with fonts and illustrations oh, in this yes, one. Yes, they absolutely do. So this the second story, this is one of the earlier ones in the collection. This is the Blackberry Pie from 1967. Um, and it's set even earlier than that because this is one of many stories where Pratchett has sort of written as if he's telling the uh, history from 100 or 200 years ago of uh, various places, in this case, 
the town of Blackbury where a lot of his early stories are set. And this one was in the Bucks Free Press. And a lot of these, the Bucks Free Press would, would print this children's column. If we, we've talked about this briefly on the show before, mm. but it was uh, called Uncle Jim. And so the stories were just credited to Uncle Jim and there'd be a short bit of fiction. And it was quite short. It wasn't a lot of space. So a lot of these stories that were in the Bucks Free Press originally were published in three or four parts over a, a sequence of weeks. And this one, I think, was just two parts long. So it's one of the, the shorter ones. Um, and this is slightly revised from the original. Um, but there's also, there's a, there's a very different version of this. And we'll talk a bit about this later because we've got a question about it. But there is a, a different version of this story. And it's quite different. And it appears in a stroke of the pen. Uh, so it's, it is definitely a revision of this story, but there's a lot of changes. So we'll, we'll talk a bit about that later. All right. So this one tells the story of a very generous mayor of Blackbury from the past called Horace Clinker, which is a hilarious name because yeah. growing up, my father was always very amused that there's a lolly brand called Clinkers because in England, um, according to him, or at least in his part of England, Clinkers meant something very different. So the fact oh. that it was a chocolatey candy. He um, was highly amused by. So, um, <laughs> okay. For reasons I will not get into on our podcast, despite our R rating. Sure. I think, well, I think clinker also means like a bit of coal that's left over that you can't burn anymore, but I might be confusing that with another word. So I'll be looking that one up <laughs> for the episode notes and correcting myself if I'm wrong. Don't, don't do an image search. So Horace Clinker is mayor of Blackbury in 1871. And he's very generous and he has an idea and he's known for having ideas, but he has got like bloody stupid Johnson energy where sometimes it goes all very wrong and they illustrate it all. Um, show like things sometimes blow up. It just doesn't work out. But this time around, he wants to make sure that everyone has something good for Christmas and he wants to make a giant pie where everyone in town can have a slice. So he recruits 33 cooks, all of the cooks in town, offers to pay them five guineas a week to get it done. And they, they set about this task, um, with explosive results basically. Yeah. But it has a happy ending because like the spirit of Christmas, like once the pie explodes, which is what happens near the end of the story, he's all despondent going, and now it's raining. But then it's pointed out to him that the rain is actually gravy. And so they start putting plates out everywhere and they manage to catch most of the pie and everyone has a great time and they make plans for the next giant food that they're going to do. Yeah. So it's kind of lovely. They, they all have kind of lovely endings. Yeah. It's kind of, it's very silly, but a lot of fun and just a bit of nonsense. And I, I kind of, I kind of love the mayor in this I think, uh, the, um, the newer version is quite different in that, mm. um, the mayor doesn't really take part in the story apart from wanting everyone to get fed at Christmas. And he actually makes an order for lots and lots of reasonable sized pies, but the person that he's talking to mixes it up and instead orders one giant pie. And then, um, Isambard Brunel, famous <laughs> historical <laughs> engineer, gets involved and builds the giant pie project. So it's quite different in the setup, but the basic what happens in the story is pretty much the same in the later version. I think that I found distressing is not quite the right word, but <laughs> when all of these cooks start um, preparing this pie, first of all, he's like, I'll pay you for the many weeks it takes. I'm like, won't the ingredients go off in that time? And then they start off with the pastry, which I guess is like the pastry at the bottom, not just at the top. Mm. But it looks like the illustration shows like a pastry that looks like a top crust going onto it. Anyway, mm. I was like, you can't put the crust on and then do the inside ingredients. Um, he chooses too many types of things to go in there. He's like, it must be pheasant and it must be duck and it must be beef. And I've, I've run out of things to think of. And then so I'm not sure how delicious it would be, <laughs> but that's that's all right also. 
And then as is a small theme in this book, like it's mentioned at least twice, that's enough for a theme. Steamrollers make a make an appearance mm. um, to help roll out the cross because you can't do it with rolling pins. But it seems like even in 1967, he had an interest in steamrollers, which um, I guess most listeners will know that he had a stipulation in his will that his hard drives would be run over with a steamroller to prevent things being published. So, yeah, I think steamrollers, big theme. Well, you know, they're, they're exciting. They're an exciting bit of technology. It's like sort of old-fashioned but also very destructive. Yeah. <laughs> like that's fun. That's fun. And I think this, like all of those things you just said about this story, I think they're what make it such a great story for kids. Like it is mm. sort of slightly gross. It works on kind of, you know, kids' story logic. Like it, it, would, it definitely does not make sense. The illustrations are so good. The explosion of the pie. Yeah, it's very good. They they make a great use of like different size text in this book too. So it's because it's heavily mm. illustrated, the text is quite big. But then they'll just have every now and then there'll be a couple of words that are printed bigger than the rest of the text. And then um when there's the yeah, the onomatopoeia of the pie exploding, <laughs> it's just this sort of womp noise. It's big letters with a big splat kind of drawing. It's so good. It's beautifully done. This is also something Pratchett reused. Um, if you remember, in when we discussed Nanny Og's cookbook, there's a story in there of bloody stupid Johnson making a giant pie, which exploded. <laughs> Except he did make the pie whistle, so he makes the giant sort of blackbird-shaped pie whistle that they talk about not having in here, like not having the holes in the crust, which is why it explodes. And as we keep saying, you know, not shy of reusing his own good ideas, Mr. Pratchett. Yeah. And why not? Why not? And shall we return to Blackberry for the next story as well? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I love this one. This, I, look. Yeah. This How could so you not? Good. It's just even the name. It's called Prodye Adidolo. <laughs> And why wouldn't you? This is from 1970 and actually 1970 to 1971 because most of the stories in this book, even if they're not strictly Christmas themed, were printed around Christmas time. So this one comes from 1970. It was printed in the uh, Western Daily Press in three parts from the end of December over New Year's into early January 1971. And again, there's some good Pratchett ideas that get reused. But tell us, tell us about Prodye Adidolo. Right. Well, this was a sports story, which again normally wouldn't appeal to me, but it's great because again, it's completely off the wall. You never quite find out exactly how the sport works. You're only told that it's extremely complicated, and people don't remember it anymore. The sport is called Prodye Adidolo, and it's described as a cross between rugby, hopscotch, shove halfpenny, and vandalism. <laughs> And he drops little hints throughout of um, how it's complicated. So, like, it's got a pitch with 23 sides unless there's a new moon at the time of the match when it had 109. There's a little diagram of that. And the scoring is depending on, like, the smartness of the players or which team had the man with the nobliest knees and most particularly impressive fouls. And it's just very, very funny. And it's set again in the 1800s when there's the best player, Amos Strong in the Arm, which um, was a nice sort of precursor to some later characters that he has, mm-hmm. um, who falls in love with a girl from the next town, Umbridge, who's there, sort of like their Shelbyville to their Springfield. So they're the only two towns who play this game. He falls in love with her. She's the mayor's daughter. Her name is <laughs> Miss Fancy Ramble because she is fancy. <laughs> what a great name. He goes around um, to court her and the, the mayor sees an opportunity and he says, oh, well, you're the best player that Blackberry has, but if you want to marry my daughter, perhaps um, your team could lose. 
And so they have a sporting match the following week and he doesn't know what to do, but because he's so distressed by the decision, he's playing badly anyway. So in the second half, Fancy, who doesn't want him to throw the game, starts cheering him on. He plays amazingly. He scores several prods and also some diddles, which are worth three times a prod. <laughs> um, and oh, so good. Everyone lives happily ever after, which is very charming. So yeah, it all works out in the end. And um, one of my favorite details is at their wedding, um, both teams sort of perform an archway of honor with the nobliest knees most proudly <laughs> on display. So, yeah, it's, That's right. <laughs> Uh, that was quite <laughs> Very nice. Very cute. Yeah. It's also a story about a rivalry between these two towns, Blackbury and Umbridge. Umbridge, what a great name for Umbridge. a town. And, yeah, I mean, the, look, this predates a certain other weird sport from a fantasy author by a good two decades. <laughs> um, mm. And I want, I am disappointed that there are not prod year diddle leagues around the world playing this game. I think we need to make that happen. Well, next time there's a convention, maybe we should try. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to come up with some safe rules. I mean, it'll be modern prod year diddle. I think we we understand that in this the year 2023, we cannot play prod year diddle by the old 1870 rules. It's just too dangerous. Yeah, so no rugby, just vandalism. Yeah. <laughs> Just vandalism, knobbly knees, and the smartness of the players. It doesn't say how the smartness of the players is assessed, and it's also not 100% clear if the smartness of the players is how smart they look, as in are they, you know, neatly turned out, or the smartness of the players in how clever they are. Uh, the illustration kind of suggests it's, you know, how how neatly they're dressed because there's a couple of people in bow ties <laughs> But uh, I do quite like the idea of people running around in bow ties and shorts. Does that mean you have to be wearing, like, black tie but with shorts so that people can see your knobbly knees? Yeah, yeah. And also it doesn't say that um, the smartest dressed is good. Oh, that's true. Like, maybe that's bad. That's true. It does not. It just says points were scored based on the smartness of the players. So, yeah. Yeah, whereas it's very clear that knobblier knees score more points or at least the the mm. knobbliest ones score some points it's not 100 clear there <laughs> yeah but there's just some very silly delightful little details like we know amos strong in the arm and it's not strong i also like the detail it's not strong in the arm all spelt out it's strong into arm so it's it's very mm. <laughs> it's very uh uh very i'm going down to pit which mm. i i quite thought was delightful and it's also set exactly 100 years before it was written which, interestingly, the Blackberry Pie is not. Because the other mm. stories that are set, like, in the past are generally set, yeah, like, a hundred years before the, the current year. But Blackberry Pie isn't. But, yeah, it's really delightful. Mm. It's very silly. I like that Amos is said to be so tough that, you know, he's just sitting around chewing iron mm. bars into nails. <laughs> but then when he yeah. sees Fancy and he goes to talk to her, he's, like, got his cap in his hands and he's, like, all bashful and embarrassed and doesn't know what to say. It's very cute. And they like each other immediately, and it's just very nice. Yeah, it is nice. And the illustration's very cute, too. They're like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Although, I mean, it's a bit mean. Like, he's like, oh, she's so beautiful, and she's the mayor's daughter. And she's like, well, I can't marry him if he's not a champion. <laughs> um, yeah. So they are both a little bit shallow, but I guess that means that they're both well-suited to each other. Yeah. Uh, and a great use of giant text when uh, when Amos zooms across the field. With the ball in his teeth. He catches it in his teeth. Oh, a lot of fun. Which is, well done, the ball on surviving. 
I guess, because if you can bite a metal bar into to nails. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's some prodigious chompers he's got there. I like that he kind of has this pretense of this is real history, and he likes to say at the end of these sorts of stories, you know, oh, I, I'm sorry I can't say any more about it because it hasn't been played since 1901. It was too dangerous. And all that's left are these things in the museum. <laughs> Just a nice little touch there. Yeah. Yeah. But that brings us to the next story, I guess. I was going to say, let's spend a very short time on a very short ice age. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. There's not much to say about this one, is there? This is from 1978, so it's one of the latest stories. Uh, well, it's kind of in the middle of the range of the book because there's a couple from the late 80s in here. But this one's from 1978 from not either of the regular papers that he wrote for. So the Western Daily Press and the Bucks Free Press were the main ones he wrote stories for. But this one was for the Bath and West Evening Chronicle, which, if I remember rightly, and I'll double-check this for the episode notes, was the paper where he did not have a good time and he wanted to leave. Uh, so he was not there very long. I think that was the Bath and West Evening Chronicle. I did not remember rightly. In fact, I've got this backwards. Pratchett was probably happiest at the Bath and West Evening Chronicle, and it was the Western Daily Press where he had a bad time. The Daily Press was where he had his first panic attack, and in A Life with Footnotes, Terry says, I could not cope with the working hours on a daily newspaper. His other papers were weekly. He left the Western Daily Press after about a year in 1972, returning to his first paper, the Bucks Free Press, as a sub-editor. He wrote more Uncle Jim stories while working there for another year until scoring the job at the Evening Chronicle. The Chronicle was Pratchett's last newspaper job, which he held for nearly six years between September 1973 and April 1979. He wrote a fair amount of fiction for them, but relatively little of it has been collected compared to the work in the children's pages of the Bucks Free Press and Western Daily Press. From titles like What's More, It Can Make You Blind, Ho Yus, and What We've Seen in Other Collections, like Kindly Breathe In Thick Short Pants from A Blink of the Screen, it seems that his chronicle fiction was more adult satirical work that perhaps hasn't stood the test of time as well as the children's stories. And it was not originally called A Very Short Ice Age. It was originally called Snow, Snow, Thick, Thick Snow, which is not as good a title, I don't think. If it is the newspaper he was having a bad time at, it would explain why the story is infused with suffering so much. <laughs> like it just, it's like a guy who's like just trudging through thick snow and everything, and then he accepts his lot and then is not what he thinks it is in the end. So it's just there's not really much joy. Mm in this one. No. Because there is another snow story that is much more happy yeah. than this one. And I also don't quite understand the mechanics of it. So basically what happens is everything is covered in snow and we meet Rasmussen who has been like, okay, I'm going to be an Arctic dweller. And he's making his way across the snow with this two square pieces of wood system, which I don't fully understand because it seems like he puts one down in front of him and he steps onto that and then he somehow pulls the other one around. Oh, it says he pulls it behind him, but surely he'd have to like pick it up and put it in front of him. And that's why he's making slow mm. progress. And then there's a whole thing about a stick, seeing how deep things are. And then he helps pull someone to safety and they both walk on the things, but then they're not waterproof. So it snaps and it's all just very, very difficult. And then he goes home and his neighbor has dug out his own driveway, but that's made the problem worse for everyone else, which is, you know, that's quite a strong image. Mm. And then he's like, oh, well, it's clearly the next ice age, so I'm going to try and make myself some shoes. And then he fails at that as well, and he's miserable for a bit about that. And then he's going to have another go, and then everything's melting and everything's fine, and that's that's all done. 
I didn't really connect with this one at all. And it feels like the sort of thing that you write because you have a, I don't know, like it's, yeah, I don't feel the love of writing in this one. It's not, look, I would agree with you. I don't think it's Pratchett's best work, this story. It has the feel of, I've read a lot of stories written by children as part of my work. And often they're great, but if they have a failing, it's that a lot of them are just a collection of things that happen that don't really string together too well as a story. And that's, you know, that's part of my job is to help them learn how to do that. And this has that sort of a feeling, like it kind of vaguely has a beginning, a middle and an end, but it's like, there's no, we don't know why it's snowed. We don't know why Rasmussen is convinced it's going to be a new ice age. I mean, I think he says he read it somewhere, but it clearly isn't true. I saw it on BBC two. That's right. I wonder, my thought when I read this was, was there actually a really big winter snow that year? Like, mm. was 1978 just a year when the UK was covered in snow? And so Pratchett wrote this thing about someone who thought that was going to last forever. This time, my hunch is right. The Great West Country Blizzard of February 1978 hit the southwest of the United Kingdom only a week or so before snow, snow, thick, thick snow went to print. So... This story was indeed inspired by real life. The blizzard was one of the worst snowstorms to hit the UK ever and was the worst in Somerset, Devon and Dorset. That's right on Pratchett and the Evening Chronicle's doorstep. The snow was 30 to 60 centimetres deep in many of those places. That's like a couple of feet at least. And the deepest measured 85 centimetres in Nettlescombe, only about 45 kilometres from Pratchett's home at the time in Roborough. But just as in the story... It was very short-lived. The big fall was on the 19th of February, but it was all over by the 20th. There's a couple of nice little gags in it, and it does have some footnotes. Some of these stories do have footnotes. Yeah, like the previous one. Prodigy did also has some we forgot to mention. Oh, There's yeah. footnotes in that one as well. I did like the gag, like, you know, you said that his boards that he's using to sort of walk across the top of the snow are not waterproof, but he finds that out because when he digs the other guy out of the snow, he says, is this marine ply? What's marine ply? Well, marine ply is waterproof, so it doesn't split. <laughs> I was like, that's a good gag. I enjoyed that. Yeah. So, yeah. I, there is some joy of writing in there. Yeah, there's some joy of, of fun. But it really is just some silly things that happen because there's a lot of snow. And Rasmussen likes Brussels sprouts, which, um, yeah. you know, that's, that's fine. It's weird. Because well, that was before they genetically engineered them to not taste as horrible <laughs> as they did back then. Did they do that? Yeah, the like the ones that you have now are not the ones that like traditionally kids hate because they genetically engineered them. I think they found strains that were less bitter, oh. and so the ones you get from the shops now are not are probably not the ones you ate as children, which is why like yes, tastes change, but Brussels sprouts have changed more. Oh wow, there you go. I didn't know that. Mm. And this, I mean, because they're such that they're like the vegetable that kids are supposed to hate, aren't they? Yeah. Whereas but, I quite like them. Well, prob- I don't know if you like them now. Or if you would have liked them when well, you were little. I don't ever remember not liking them with a bit of salt on them. Mm. I always thought they were quite delicious, but maybe I got onto the good variety early. I don't know. Mm. Uh, but we should get onto the good variety of story because I think, <laughs> you know, it's a fun little diversion, a very short ice age, but not the best story in the book. I think we'd both mm. agree on that. Whereas the next one is quite a lot, a lot of, of fun. fun. And also clearly a precursor to part of Hogfather. It is the computer who wrote to Father Christmas. And this story has had more titles than I've had hot. Well, no, not that many, but it has had a lot of different titles. 
It was originally titled The Computer Who Wrote to Santa Claus. So this is one of those ones where it's been changed from Santa Claus to Father Christmas. And that was in uh, 1988. So this is one of the later stories in the collection. But then it was reprinted in both 1992 and then 1996. And in 96, it had the title The Megabyte Drive to Believe in Santa Claus. (laughs) So a slightly (laughs) weird computer pun. And when it was collected, because this one is also available in Once More with Footnotes, um, the, the first collection of Pratchett's short writings and the one that's still in print now, A Blink of the Screen. And he kind of remembered it from 1996 and said that was the original version and said it was originally titled The Megabyte Drive to Believe in Santa Claus. But it was printed after that in 2001. And that's the version that appears in those collections. But he wanted it to be called FTB, and I'm not entirely sure what FTB stands for, because I don't remember that being in the story. Mm -mm. I don't think it comes up. I don't know. But if you know why he wanted it to be called FTB, because that's what it's called in those collections. Uh, Well, it's as the title promises about a computer who writes to Father Christmas. So we meet Father Christmas, and it seems like it's a quiet office building. So the typewriters are asleep under their covers, the telephones are quiet, it's empty, and so he's not quite sure why he's there, only he discovers that a computer has written to him. So that's who he's come to see, and he goes, oh, well, I didn't realize you're a computer, and the computer says, well, sorry, I didn't know it was important. And they've done some fun stuff with the fonts, which to me was a bit reminiscent of talking to death because of like the way <laughs> it's not all caps or anything, but there's just that vibe to it. But he, the story is essentially a chat between him and this computer about the computer's life. The computer's complaining about how all it does is sort wages and how it doesn't get any recognition. They had an office party in there and they didn't invite him. Like someone spilled some peanuts on his keyboard and that was the highlight. But um, he's just as much as part of the workforce as everyone else and isn't sort of treated as such. Meanwhile, Father Christmas is sort of feeling that children just want blippity-bloppity things with um with batteries. And he also says they want computers which in a disparaging way. And I'm like, you're talking to a computer, buddy. Like, just be cool for like a second. <laughs> and <laughs> they finally meet this nice middle ground where – he gets toys out of his case um, to show the computers, so like the classic old ones, so like a train set which he sets up around the place and there's a great illustration that goes with that. And then the computer gets quite sad thinking, oh, well, I'm not going to be able to keep any of this stuff because if I'm surrounded by stuff, then they're just going to take it away. And so Father Christmas asks him, how old are you? And they work out that he's two and he's like, well, there's something I can give to a two-year-old who believes in Father Christmas, isn't there? And so at the end, it's revealed when the people come back to the office, um, there's a technician who's very confused. Turns out that there's a teddy bear sitting on top of the computer, and any time the teddy bear is removed, the computer just switches off and refuses to work, so they have to leave it there. Quite cute. Again, it's a nice ending. Yeah. It's a nice illustration at the end where it's smiling with its teddy bear. It is delightful. I do love this story. It's very, very cute. And I really love the version of Father Christmas in this story too because he's so... He's so lovely and understanding. Like he just, he, he figures out that it's a computer quite early on and just sort of accepts it. I thought that was just quite delightful. And there's that great bit where he's talking about, again, this is this idea that Father Christmas is kind of sick of the fact that kids want all these mass produced cartoon spin off toys now with batteries and flashing lights and death rays and robots and stuff. Whereas he misses the old fashioned standard toys. And there's a great bit where. Father Christmas, I hadn't had this much fun since 1894. Real toys were all around the computer's casing. All the stuff 
which is always shown in the top of Father Christmas's mm. sack and which is never asked for. None of them use batteries. And I'm like, yeah, because you still see whenever anyone draws Father Christmas, he's got to feel a bit ye oldie worldy, right? So the top bit of his sack has always got like, yeah, toy trains and a rocking horse and a doll and a teddy bear. A ball. A ball, yeah, a jack-in-the-box, like stuff like that coming out the top. Whereas, of course- Hardly any kids get those sort of toys these days anymore. Yeah, I thought that was really quite delightful. Because jack-in-the-boxes are terrifying. <laughs> they are. It's very tense. I don't like it. Yeah, because you're like, it's like, please have anxiety in a box. Yeah, they are. Even though you're in charge of the anxiety. That makes it worse somehow, I think. Mm. You're just compelled to keep turning the handle. <laughs> yeah, because you also need to let him fulfill his function, right? So you can't just let him like be in there, not jumping out. Yeah. That would be awful. He'd be imprisoned forever. Oh, should we just leave them all out? Well, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know what the solution is. But I do I do like this a lot. And uh, and it's got a lovely ending. And, of course, again, repurposed for a scene in Hogfather when Death, as the Hogfather, speaks to Hex in Unseen University and leaves him a present behind, which they can't take away or he refuses to stop working, much to mm. Ponder Stevens' dismay. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, great inspiration there for Pratchett to reuse later. But just a really nice story on its own, I thought. Yeah. We get in here now to the first of a couple of stories in this book, which are based on Christmas songs. And this one mm. is Good King Wences Lost, which I thought- uh, Great pun. Great pun. Great pun. Um, and this is, you know, obviously it's based on uh, Good King Wenceslas. Which is not a song that we really sing in Australia much. I've heard it a few times, but it's not a big one here. And I, I don't think has been for a long time, but it still gets sung in the UK. It was originally published in the Bucks Free Press. It was in three parts, uh, in December. And he basically rewrote this story again for the Western Daily Press a few years later. But in that version, it's called How Good King Wenceslas Went Pop for the DJ's Feast of Stephen. So he just sort of, updates a couple of things about it to make it a bit more hip and groovy, <laughs> basically. But it's more or less the same basic story. And that version does appear in A Stroke of the Pen, although they don't mm. mention its predecessor in that book, as they do with some of the others. All right. So good, well, reasonably good most of the time, King Wenceslas is looking out. Um, and basically, it, when this is taking place is a bit confusing because I was assuming it's the ye old timey one and he looks out the window and there's a guy looking for petrol yeah. and he's saying all well, the petrol stations are all closed it's the feast of Stephen nothing's open so the guy sort of disappears off into the fog and King Wenceslas later on is um getting ready to feast in his presumably his castle and then he's he's feeling bad he's like well, I should have helped that man a bit more and I wonder what he's doing and is he okay and his I think his servant or his manservant um, it's like, oh, I know who that is. That's that guy who lives over there. And King Wenceslas is like, all right, well, let's go find him and get the chauffeur to pack you a thing of fuel and some food and let's go out into the cold and give this man some petrol. Um, and you will never gather this from the title, but they get lost. Um, <laughs> yes. The man that they're looking for has made it home. It's not quite clear what he needed petrol for. Like, was he going? Like, was, he still got home. I don't know if he needed petrol to get there. Anyway, they're lost. The man finds out that they're lost. He rallies a pub of people to go find them. Turns out King Wenceslas and his manservant are in a hole feasting, and he falls down there with them, and they all have a, a jolly time, and that's all good. Yeah. Pretty much. Like, yes. Yeah. Uh, it is. That's the thing. It is very weird, though. I agree with you, because, like, I, I do think it's a very funny 
particularly for a kid's story, it's a very funny idea to have a king who's just like a bloke who lives in your neighborhood <laughs> as well <laughs> as the king, uh, which which is clearly the deal with this good king, Wenceslas. It feels like you come up with a good pun for a title, yes. Wenceslost, and then you come up with a story to match that title, which I completely respect. That's I don't know if that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. It's just how it feels because, like, the best bit about this is the title. I certainly enjoyed it more than um, the Snowdrift one, and there's, like, you can feel like you're having a good time writing it and having a good time reading it. I just want to take this moment to point out that I recently found out that King Wenceslas based on a, on a real guy. So he was based on Wenceslaus I, mm. King of Bohemia in the 900s. If you've ever had a Christmas Carol book or seen an illustration of this song, he's always like drawn as an old jolly man, sort of like looking out beatifically mm. at his kingdom. And King Wenceslaus was 24 when he died, Wenceslaus. He was apparently assassinated or murdered by or on behalf of his brother, Boris Laus the Cruel, should have guessed from the name, yeah. probably. He got the name later. But yeah, he died young and apparently was quite nice and just it was not really the same vibe as the song. Yeah. I guess the song was probably written considerably later. Mm. He'd become a legendary figure. But do you think there's a thing like you can't be a good, kind king if you're young? Uh, well, That's why illustrators draw him old. Maybe. I mean, I you're think- a prince if you're young and you're a king if you're old. Yeah, I think people just think about a king as being older. Don't they? Mm. Yeah. He also wasn't a king. He was a duke. So there's also that. Oh, right. In real life, he's just a duke. Yeah. I mean, uh, just a duke. I'm not a duke. Just he's, a duke. Come on. <laughs> You're not a duke? Wow. Okay. I'm leaving this podcast. <laughs> oh, no. I've ruined everything. But uh, the, he inhabits, in the story, he inhabits like a weird sort of reality where, first of all, yeah, he just lives down the street from you. Second of all, he speaks more or less in the words of the song at various times. He knows what petrol is and understands that because that's also a joke. Like, you know, in the song, gathering winter fuel is like the peasants trying to gather sticks to burn. Whereas here he's actually looking for what we would think of as fuel, which is petrol. But they know what petrol is. They've got some, but they just go out walking on foot (laughs) in this horrible snowstorm instead of taking a vehicle of some sort and get lost. And then later on- Don Quixote energy. Well, when they're sitting around, like, waiting to be rescued in this sort of snow cave that they've fallen into, um, they're singing the song. <laughs> so, they know the song. <laughs> it's so weird, but it's so- uh, It just works. It's just so weird. It works. Is he really, like, a King Wenceslas, or is he just someone who's super into the song, <laughs> calls himself that, his friend humors him? It's just Don Quixote. But, like, this this guy. Well, it could be. I mean, he does have a page and he is able to knight the other guy, Abel, I think his name is, so that he never has to go gathering fuel again. Although I don't know how that works. Presumably he's still got a job. Maybe he doesn't need a job. He doesn't have to go anywhere. He can stay at home, <laughs> mm. uh, at least at Christmas time. Yeah, I, it is weird. I don't, I don't know. But I don't think it really matters because I think the point is, if this song happened today, how silly would it get? And pretty silly is the answer. I do like the bit where they get stuck in the snow. They're walking through the snow and the king has Clarence the page on his shoulders, which I think is nice. It shows that the king is not above doing the manual work, right? He's carrying his page so that he can they hmm. read a signpost over the snowdrift. And Clarence says, the signpost says, if you want to go anywhere, don't start from here, <laughs> which... I thought it was a great, a great gag. And that's how they know they're lost as they find a, a signpost that says basically you're lost if you're here. So I, I enjoyed this one. I thought it was great. There's a lot of joy in this one. Very silly, but a lot of fun. 
which is kind of how I feel about the next one as well, mm. The Weather Chick. I, when I saw this title, I was like, I don't know what this is about. Uh, but it's kind of got a double meaning, I think, in this story. Mm. So this one's from 1971 yeah. and was uh, from the Bucks Free Press. It was in, published in four parts in September and October. So this is kind of the one that's furthest away from Christmas in terms of when it was published. But it's still kind of in the lead up to winter. And it's, I think it fits. It's not really Christmassy or wintry that much, but I think it kind of earns its place in this collection. Yeah. And I, yeah, I thought it was fun. All right. So back in Blackberry, where strange things happen, but everyone just sort of is going around the twist, but I'm with it. <laughs> the weather starts going strange, essentially. Like it will start raining on one patch of the pavement or it'll start raining inside. So we start learning about this incrementally, like the government or like the mayor is having a meeting indoors and it starts raining over his head and no one's quite sure what's happening but um Bertha Fish the local weather lady or a, a weather chick if you like <laughs> realizes that it's all triangulating around the library so she goes there and she discovers that there's a with a weathercock up the top usually but underneath that they found a nest with an egg in it and up the top, they found there's three of them. There's not just the metal one. There's a, a real life weathercock and a weather hen. And so the egg hatches. There's a weather chick in it. So the weather chick adopts the weather chick and is in charge of the weather around it. Like, so the older it gets, the more control it has over the weather. And the story details a few different ways that's been good for the town, including when the dam breaks and the weather chick is able to, I think, freeze it. Is yeah. that what happens? Yeah. It freezes the water before it all goes wrong. Again, a really charming story about a supernatural creature that looks after the town. Yeah, I really like that. And weirdly, I mean, when you think about Pratchett and his journey writing Discworld particularly, where he sort of, you know, grows better and more invested in writing women as characters, this is, I think, the only one in the book where the main character is a woman, and she's pretty great. <laughs> Um, mm. Bertha Fish is her name, which is a great <laughs> name. All the names in his children's stories are so much fun. They're really great. Yeah. Like the, the mayor is called someone Pouncer or Bouncer or something as well. Yeah. Alderman Fred Pouncer. Mm, yeah. Good name. But Bertha Fish, I stand Bertha Fish. Weathercock, Weather Hen, and Weather Chick. It was just, it was nice seeing that terminology. So. Yeah. And just like sort of a great little weirdness. I like that Bertha, I, I really particularly was tickled by the way Bertha does the sort of, you know, murder board kind of thing where she sticks pins in the map where all the weird weather is happening and goes, hmm, that's a circle around the library. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's some good detective work there, Bertha. I, I appreciate this. And then that's when she goes to check it out and finds them. So, yeah, and just just that it's just a little mystery, but we just accept it. It's like, oh, there's a weird metal egg that hatches a weird metal bird that eats metal and can change oh, yeah. the weather. It's Yeah, it's great. I love it. Yeah, an absolute delight. Yeah. I don't, know, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, it's I I like it because I also just really enjoy stories where someone meets a weird creature and the weird creature is just friendly. Like there's no monster. It's just, it's my friend now. And I'll help you with your issues and just feed me ball bearings. It's fine. Yeah. Wouldn't we all like to have mm -hmm. a magical pet? What kind of magical pet would yes. you want, Liz? I want this now because it can control the weather. Yeah, that is pretty cool. And it sounds like a charming beast. Yeah. But I guess in this society, I would want one that could pass as a normal pet. So then everyone's like, that's just your normal pet, but it can do cool stuff. <laughs> How about you? What would you have? Um, I think I would want a pet that had the ability to teleport and take me with it to places. 
because I think that would be cool. Nice. But as long as we could fit control where we wanted to go, it was not just like weird teleporting electric blue cat with big ears and like it sees a mouse and suddenly we've teleported to the other side of the mouse hole. Like, I don't want that. <laughs> oh. That that would happen though. It would. Like, it would happen. It would totally happen. I think you'd have to train, you'd have to train the teleporting pet, the telepet, if you will, um, <laughs> to go where you want to go and then reward it. That's what you'd have to do. That'd yeah. be cool. But that would be a great montage. Like the training montage of that would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Lisa, I would like to know what kind of magical pet you would like. Would you like a weather chick or a weather hen? It's not a weather chick for very long, is it? Because it's like they find mm. they find the weather hen and the weather cock that are alive. Then they find the nest and she takes it to the weather station. And it says, it's been there a week and she's fed the hen all this metal, including a bunch of ball bearings. And then it just leaves and then the egg hatches. I'm like... This is the worst parenting ever. <laughs> I've given birth to you. You're on your own. Yeah. Um, <laughs> pretty rough. But that was a little delight, that story. Well, the next one, we, we're back in Father Christmas territory now. And mm. most of the rest of the stories are, with one notable exception, much more literally Christmas themed, including the next one, which is just called Judgment Day for Father Christmas. Not quite its original title. This is one of the latest stories in the book. This one's from 1992. Um, mm. as far as I could find from the Western Daily Press, again, in the Christmas TV extra. And it was originally called Judgment Day for Santa Claus. So again, this is one where Santa Claus has been changed to Father Christmas, which is weird because in the text, they make reference to his name being Father Christmas. Mm. All right. So this one has a really fun premise, um, which could absolutely be expanded out into like a wider series, um, but he does touch on a lot. It's a society where semi-supernatural creatures are now susceptible to being charged for the things they do, which, if you think about it, are quite illegal. So, like, Tooth Fairy breaks into people's houses and takes their teeth and leaves money. Mm. And, like, Santa, like, breaks into your house and he tries to make the case that, you know, because he's up for judgment on this, he's like, well, it's not really burglary because I leave things behind, but, you know, it's still breaking and entering. And so you have the joy of sort of going, oh, actually, yeah, all of these people, if you think about it, they're doing lots of different what would, in theory, be crimes, but then going about proving that they're not crimes like oh he measures his waist and it's it's more than a standard (laughs) chimney and all that kind of thing and throughout you sort of get the courtroom workers be like what are these little guys all around the place these little and we know they're christmas elves but it's just building up towards the end where he's obviously not charged and it's because there's a jury of his peers (laughs) (laughs) they're all christmas elves (laughs) so yeah it's just it's a very cute. The story itself, very simple, but the concept is a really strong one, like a really interesting one where it's like, what if yeah. they were brought to trial for their crimes? I kind of saw it as like, it's a, almost like an alternate format for that thing that does the rounds or used to do the rounds back in the pre-email days and early email days of, you know, the physicist who'd worked out Santa Claus is impossible because they'd worked out how fast he'd have to go, what the mass of the sleigh would have to be because of all the presents, how many places you'd have to visit, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and this felt to me like another version of that. But interestingly, you know, there's that whole thing where Father Christmas's main legal defense is that I couldn't possibly have done these things. They're impossible. Um, and I don't exist. Or as we would call it in legal terms, he's pleading that he is not guilty on grounds of diminished existence, <laughs> which um, was a delightful bit of nonsense legalese. It's great. I'd absolutely read like a series of these where all of them face their judgment. 
Yeah. There's some very funny little bits of this, actually. I think some of the best jokes, I don't know if it's the best story, but there's some of the best jokes, I think, in the book are in here. The judge says a lot of very funny things, like, you'd say that people don't believe in you. Well, you know, in the 1990s, we believe in a lot of things which aren't real. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Father uh, Christmas is at least as real as a great many other things I read about. And again, you know, he's calling him Father Christmas. And even the story starts with him saying, why father? Are you a religious person of some persuasion? <laughs> Which I thought was very funny. And and his answer being, not exactly. <laughs> very telling. Accurate. Yeah. 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 And there was one other, was the other? a saint. But well, to some. Saint yeah. Nicholas. Not to this judge, apparently. <laughs> not mm. at all. I did like also the bit where after he claims it can't be an offense, I'm leaving presents behind when I break in. The judge says, I'm afraid he does not understand English law. Absolutely anything can be an offense and frequently (laughs) is. (laughs) And then he has a go at the French for no particular reason. I mean, there's a few goes at the French in this series. Like one of my favorite jokes in one of the upcoming ones is le cackle. But yeah, we'll come to that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also there's the thing like the, you know, you were saying that, uh, they've, they've changed the law for, to apply to quasi supernatural people is the phrase they use. Well, that's an EU directive. And I think at the time when this was written in the sort of early nineties, uh, this was still when the whole EU thing was a bit contentious in some circles. And people like to say, well, they're imposing some rules on us that we don't like. You know, we all know how that ended badly. So mm-hmm. we won't go into that. But yeah, and then it ends, you know. Abominably. Ab- <laughs> abominably. Yes. Mm. Yes, it did. Mm. Uh, I do like the end joke just before we get onto that abominableness where mm. he's like, oh, well, uh, I'm glad this case is over. What's the next case? And uh, they say attempted murder by means of an armadillo, Malad. <laughs> and you're like, okay, sure. <laughs> Why not? Is that a reference to something? Because I was like, I, I don't think so. my brain. So I'm like, is, is it like. A misunderstanding of like the cask of Montiardo, but I was like, no, that's thinking too hard. Uh, Just because I've been watching Edgar Allan Poe things recently, but yeah, I I like where you went with that, but I I think it's just a bit of fun nonsense. Yeah, mm. but let's return to Blackberry Liz. Now, this next story is probably the best known one in this collection, but it was originally published in the Bucks Free Press at the end of December in 1968 into January 1969. It was in four parts, so it's a slightly longer one. Not that long because the parts were very short, <laughs> but, you know, you can kind of see where they were when you're reading the story. Uh, and it was adapted for television by Narrativia and Eagle Eye Drama in 2021, and it's called The Abominable Snow Baby. And the fun thing about this one is it is referenced in the earlier story, as in the earlier in this book story, Prodier Didolo, where it says the town of Blackberry isn't just famous for huge pies and scary snowmen. And I read that because I hadn't read The Abominable Snow Baby before this collection. I was like, oh, is that just like a fun thing that they've tacked on there to be like, look, there's things that happen in between that you don't know about, or is there a story that's not in here? And so I was quite surprised to come across that story later because it seemed like an odd thing to just... Like I, I would have put this story where Prodier Didolo is and put Prodier Didolo around. Not necessarily exactly here. Like you want to have the pacing go well, but I would have put them the other way around so that we had the snowman one first or edited it so we're not referencing the snowman before we get to the snowman hmm. story. But I don't think it works as foreshadowing. Yeah. well, this, It was just confusing. Because this was originally published before Prodier Didolo in the same paper a couple of years before, but I think he also did write a separate story about an abominable snowman, not just this one. 
which may have been closer to- I'll, I'll look up when that one was published. But this one is not mm. an abominable snowman. It is an abominable snow baby. And mm. I quite like the cast of characters in this, Liz. So this one centers at least initially on Albert Scroggins, who is the caretaker of the town hall with his cat, Frambly. Great cat name. Yeah, gets a good sort of appearance in his too. But he opens the door one day and it's just snow and he's quite worried about his grandmother, which is very touching. So he starts digging a hole underneath and someone is digging a hole the other way and it's his grandmother who was worried about him. And she's like, what is it, 98? And she's like having the time of her life. She's saying, oh, everyone's doing adventures. They're setting up a thing over here. It's actually quite nice under the snow. It's not too cold, unlike out there. So she's like, I'll come show you where everyone is. They're all like doing the stuff. So she goes, takes them over. But it turns out that there is an abominable snowman who has frightened people, pops up out of the snow and everyone freaks out except for grandma who's like oh i think he's just a baby he hasn't got teeth he's little they're like he's six foot tall she's like no no he's fine so she sort of takes this abominable snow baby under her wing looks after him i'm sort of he's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and all of a sudden one day a much bigger one shows up and it's the mum snow 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 mom the abominable snow mom picks up her baby under one arm and the grandmother and the other one and they head off to the spooky area even more which despite being surrounded by council flats and libraries and all sorts of things is one of those areas untouched by time, unexplored. And so people go off to go find the grandmother and rescue her, but everyone gets spooked out one by one, except for Albert. He gets to the cave where they're being kept and actually she's being treated quite well and everyone's getting along fine. And he and his grandmother take an opportunity moment to sneak out and it ends happily ever after. Yeah, it's really, it's so cute. I can see why they made this into a film, really. I can kind of, I mean, I'm just kind of surprised they didn't go, maybe we could make a little series of films about Blackberry. And maybe they will. I don't know. They haven't made any others yet. But there's just some really fun little bits. That area where they Mm. go, that's um, even more, (laughs) great pun name, (laughs) uh, which is where Rince Mangle, the gnome comes from, who is the gnome in the short story, Rince Mangle, the gnome of even more. Uh, which is basically an early draft version of Truckers because he Mm. goes into a department store, meets a bunch of other gnomes and saves them, brings them up to even more. So I like that there's this whole other little Pratchett universe of Blackberry and even more and Umbridge and there's just all this weird stuff that happens there. And I I was kind of surprised actually looking at these stories that they didn't just make one collection of all the Blackberry ones. Cause I was like, you could, mm. you could do that. It's like the weird town of Blackberry. That would have been fun. I think there's still time to put them together. Well, I guess that's true in order. <laughs> yeah. In order <laughs> that could make <laughs> sense. I'm going to have to compile a list of which ones are set in Blackberry. Cause there's quite a lot. Mm. Um, I will do that. And there's some that could be set in Blackberry, but we don't know for sure. Yeah. They're just sort of in a nondescript town, aren't they? That could be Blackberry. Does the computer one take place in Blackberry? Because that could be Blackberry. It doesn't say. It's just an office, isn't it? You don't really find out where the office yeah. is. So it absolutely could be Blackberry. Because mm. the ones that don't say they're in Blackberry generally don't say where they are. So they could absolutely be there. Mm. So that could be fun. But I do like that yeah. this has got some great footnotes in it. There's a bit early on where the snow's so deep that people are, are digging tunnels under it rather than trying to shovel it out of the way. And it, and it says, it was as quiet and white as the inside of a ping pong ball. <laughs> And then the footnote says, though Albert Scruggins had never actually been inside a ping pong ball, so he did not know if, in fact, it may have been full of very tiny creatures having a noisy party. <laughs> Which is just a delightful image. I love it. And a potential spin-off story. Yeah. 
the jokes kind of get better, I think, as the stories get a little bit older. I mean, I say that. This one's from 1968, so it's still quite an early one. But there's some good jokes in this. I really, I really dug it. Yeah. I don't know if he edited it a little bit. I think he might have. So there's a couple of these ones that did get a little edit later on, even though they hadn't been republished except in these books. I'm not sure if this is one of them. Without access to the original ones, it's a little hard to tell. But we know that in the first two volumes of these early children's stories, he did sort of tweak them a little bit. But he, the way he talked about it, he didn't change them very much. And, you know, I don't think he really needed to. No, it's fun. Fine, just as they are. All right, let's do another one that's based on a song. Yeah. So this is The Twelve Gifts of Christmas. Uh, again, quite an early story. So originally from 1968 in the Bucks Free Press, uh, printed in three parts just before Christmas. And the last part, this is an interesting tidbit I found on Colin Smythe's website, which is where I got a lot of this information from. He's got a really good record of where Pratchett's short stories were all published. But he did an illustration. This one has the new illustrations by Mark Beach, but the original one that he did does appear in a blink of the screen. It's at the end. And it's just a picture of all of the characters in the pear tree. And it's quite delightful. Spoilers. Uh, but that, but that was, that was printed under the, originally under the title, The Prince and the Partridge. And that's the title that it appears under in a blink of the screen. But here it's called The Twelve Gifts of Christmas. And I think probably those titles are giving the game away a little bit. So I can kind of see why they might have changed it to The Twelve Gifts of Christmas. All right. So this one starts off with a prince and it starts with Once Upon a Time. That's always a good start, which is a great opening line. Um, <laughs> The prince is from the land of the sun, and I'm going to skip over a few bits. He suddenly comes across princess of the land of the moon and wonders how he can marry her because they fall instantly in love. And he gets some advice from a bird in a tree that turns out to be a partridge and that tree is a pear tree. And he's like, oh, well, her father's got this very specific stipulation for what you need to do in order to marry or woo her. Mm. All I'll say is she has promised to marry the first man that gives her a Christmas present that dances, leaps, plays tunes, makes a beat, carries pails, hisses, swims, lays eggs, can be worn on one hand, sings, cackles, coos, waggles its eyebrows, and is good to eat. All at once, let me add. And um, the prince is like, mm, okay, what about a parrot? He's like, no, 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 the, the rainbow guy tried that. It's That won't do. So he goes away. He gets his best minds on it. They still struggle to come up with it. And the partridge suddenly shows up and is like, I got a solution for you. And he's like, okay, well, didn't realize you could help, but here we go. And as you can probably guess from the title, he rustles up a whole bunch of quite familiar figures, gets them all in a tree and gets them to do their thing. And so there's a fantastic sort of page where he gets all the noises are done in different fonts and different sizes. My favorite, as I alluded to earlier, was the three French hens who are saying le cackle, which is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> um, and, and the king and the princess like, this is great. Yeah, this is exactly it. You can marry her. That's fine. Very good. Well done. And they're all very happy and that's how it ends. The partridge is like, you're welcome for all the help, but I would like to, at the wedding, perform a song about all this, if that's all right. <laughs> Like, of course you can. And I was like, that's very funny, like, because it's all based on this thing and the song's going to be in it. And then not only does he perform the song at the wedding, but he's instantly made prime minister on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's a very smart talking partridge. I love the partridge in this. He's one of my favorite characters in the book. Uh, I just love a lot of things about him. I love that he is like the origin of the song. He puts himself in the song. Mm. I love that he has the solution and he gives it to the prince, but. He just turns up with it and the prince is like, what are you doing? He's like, 
well, I can help you. He's like, well, I didn't know you could help me. He's like, we didn't ask me, did you? <laughs> I knew all the stuff about this. I could have helped you immediately. I thought that was very funny, even though the wizards don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I also like that. He's very good. It's not so much that he's come up with a genius solution that really solves the riddle. It's more that he's done something so ridiculous that the king thinks it's hilarious and it's good enough. And I thought that was kind of nice as well. That's certainly how it felt to me yeah. anyway. Because he says, it's the funniest thing I've seen in years. And it does everything it should do. It would Marry be. my daughter by any means. <laughs> uh, great. Just very It's made silly. me laugh. Have my daughter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, you know, it's very early Pratchett, so he is still a bit in the, it's a fairy tale. People just get married at the end. She seems into it. Um, he'd start to question that as a trope later on. But for now, he's writing a story for kids. He's like, we'll keep it simple. Mm. Yeah. But it is cute. It is cute. Liz, I can't believe we're at the last story in this book already. Yeah, I know. It's a eclectic collection, but I, I'm glad to have read it because I don't know if this is one that I would have picked up on my own if we hadn't been doing this podcast. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, all of the short story collections from the early stuff are really interesting in that there's sort of this grab bag of weird ideas that Pratchett had for stories for kids that he put together and you can see his brain sort of going, yeah, that's a good idea and not forgetting about it. And so much stuff comes back in his later work. But this last story, which is another really Father Christmassy one, this is such a delightful one to end on. I feel like it bookends the book very nicely. Mm. Uh, but this is Father Christmas Goes to Work at the Zoo. It's from 1973, originally from the Bucks Free Press in January. So it was set just after Christmas, which is appropriate when we get to this. It had been collected before. So this is one that um, appeared in some of the special editions of Dragons at Crumbling Castle, which was the first collection of these early short stories. Although, for some reason, in the US edition that it appears in, it's called Father Christmas Goes to Work, and they do not give away that it's a zoo where he works. Yeah. But that's not the only place he works, is it? Yeah. And I would just like to point out that I think this makes a good case for what I was saying earlier on, that they're all different Father Christmases, because this shows a Father Christmas going and trying out a whole lot of different jobs, kind of like the book The Zoo, where they send a whole lot of pets to this child from the zoo to see what suits his household. They send this Father Christmas out to a whole lot of workplaces to see what suits his temperament. But none of those places that they mention are a department store and the department store energy like has a different sort of feeling to it. And he like sticks with that job for quite a while. So it's implied in this one that this is Father Christmas's first outside job. So it's not like that was last year or whatnot, mm. but anyway, so here's a summary of the story. Father Christmas is just relaxing on the couch and it is driving his wife insane because she is darning his socks and he's always getting under her feet. So she's like, you know, you really only work one day a year. So maybe just to help out financially and maybe just to not be in the house all the time, you should go out and find a job. I would like to point out that he works one day a year, but he works quite a lot on that day going to like millions of houses. So maybe he needs that time to, to rest and recuperate, but all the same, this is a good premise for a story. So he goes to the job center, as you do, and the the man there is delighted. He reckon like he's very open that he is Father Christmas. He's not trying to hide it. And the guy goes, "Oh, when I was nine, you bought me a train set." And there's a great footnote that says, "Actually, that year he got every nine year old a train set." But that's all right. So he starts sending him out to different jobs. So the first one is at the zoo because he likes working with animals, 
and he basically messes that up by giving out free elephant rides. He lets the monkeys out. He just is having a good time in a way that is not what the zoo wants. He lets the hippos fly away because the man sort of says, oh, you know, they're there to be, like the animals are there to be studied and helped. And and he's like, well, the hippos didn't want to be studied and helped, so they wanted to help themselves, so now they're flying away. Yeah. <laughs> That was a good gag. I like yeah. it. Next one, he sent out to run an ice cream truck, but um, because he's so used to giving children things for free and it being all about joy, he sells 100 pounds worth of ice cream for seven pounds and makes really elaborate things. So that also doesn't quite work for him. Next one, he starts working in a garden or in a municipal greenhouse, which seems like it's going to be great until he's given the responsibility of the big ornamental flower display. And they say, you can make it anything you want. And so he spells out Merry Christmas, despite it being... Nowhere near Christmas, and I thought that was quite um, quite. It's like January. Yeah, I feel like it's like a bit off of them to fire him. So you can do anything you like, and he's been very open that he is Father Christmas. It is not a secret, so it's a bit rude. They're like, oh, he likes Christmas, and he celebrated it a bit. So it's looking all very glum and bad. He goes home to his wife, and they're like, oh well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And the guy from the job center shows up, and he goes, you didn't tell me you're 600 years old. You should be getting a pension. In fact, you should be getting back pension for all the 500 plus years of pension you haven't had. And so everyone lives happily ever after and has a cup of tea. Doesn't get him out from under his wife's feet, which seemed to be one of her primary motivators. But um, there you go. Yeah, which is a theme he does come back to in other work. This is a cute story. And I do like how, once again, even though I agree with you, it does feel like a different Father Christmas, but it's his inability to engage with the regular world and understand that things are not like it is at Christmas time. You know, it's that weird dichotomy in all fictional stories about Santa Claus that posit him as a real person where he does the things that he does in stories, but then he enters the real world where that clearly doesn't happen and the two things then clash. And it's such a trope of Father Christmas's real stories. I kind of love it. And it's never quite resolved like in any of those stories. It's never quite made sense that he makes all these toys and gives them away for free, but also your parents are buying you toys from the toy store. And they don't seem surprised that there's presents they didn't buy. Like, it's very rarely addressed how that actually works and why no one believes in Santa Claus if he's actually giving everyone presents every year. But it doesn't really matter. I just, the, his interactions with the animals, with the kids buying ice creams, with the gardeners, it's just quite a delightful story. Yeah, it's, and again, I reckon to make a beautiful film as well. Like, it would just be quite fun to see all these scenarios. I mean, you can see them in your brain when you read them, but I think it just make a quite nice animation. <laughs> it would, it would. I mean, I feel like, yeah, you could you could make most of the Father Christmas stories into little shorts and they'd be quite fun. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I don't know there's much more to say about Father Christmas goes to work at the zoo. You mentioned my favourite gag, which is the one about the hippos. <laughs> to save himself. That, was, that was great. Mm. Uh, made me wistful for Mr. Whippy Vans. You don't see them much anymore. Oh, I heard an ice cream van like a month ago and I ran out mm. to see if I could find it. And, I, and it was just like on the other side, like in inaccessible part of the road. Yeah, they're like ghosts <laughs> now because they kind of come down a side street. You know, you hear them, but you can never be quite sure if they're in your street or this, a street like a block away. 
Yeah. I hope one turns up in my neighborhood this year. I'm pretty sure I heard one last year, but then I couldn't find it. So I hope one comes around. Can you, can you request them to a neighborhood? Like how does it, or can, do they have like trackers on them that like you can follow these days where you can be like, Oh, it's coming around to near mm. my neighborhood. I'll be around and not wearing my, um, non outdoor pajamas at that time. They're kind of the original food truck, aren't they? Because mm. they sort of predate all of those sort of taco trucks and burger vans and all that kind of stuff. So you would hope that they would be on those food truck tracker mm. app things, wouldn't you? Yeah. I'm going to have to look that up. We'll, we'll see if we can find. We'd love to hear your favorite ice cream van stories. I feel like this is weird. We've mentioned ice cream vans in two episodes in a row nearly because we talked about the KLF in a recent episode who referenced an ice cream van. If I can mention Billy Joel most days at work, I reckon we can mention ice cream vans twice on the podcast. That's that's okay. <laughs> Do you mention Billy Joel all the time at work? Is that a thing? I just yeah, he comes up in conversation quite often because I bring him into conversation wherever possible. So you know. Well, I mean, that brings us to the end of the book. As a collection, what do we think about Father Christmas's fake beard? I think it is a good collection where I would happily, well, not happily, um, but. How to say this kindly? There's a few that I would cut and it would be stronger, I think. Like, I think it would strengthen it to lose one or two of them. Not from like history, maybe just from this collection specifically. Like, they, I think they belong in something like another blink of the screen, or like in that kind of collection where it's like lots of things. Whereas this one, there's a strong theme, there's only a few stories. So a weaker one brings it down a lot more, if that makes sense. Mm. No, no, I, I get what you mean. And it's not like there are several Christmas-themed stories in A Stroke of the Pen, not just the alternate versions of a few of these ones. So, yeah, there there now are more that could have been included here than we've seen. It's interesting because like, the other the other Christmas one of his that we've talked about, we did a whole episode about it, was um, 20 Pence with Envelope and Seasonal Greeting, <laughs> which is the sort of really weird Lovecraftian <laughs> horror of the future as seen through a mystical doorway that works like a Christmas card. Very, very weird, great story, but not for kids. I don't not, no. not that there's anything horrifying in it for kids, but I think they just wouldn't get it. It's a little bit too sophisticated a parody of Lovecraft for that. And not just Lovecraft, but that sort of Victorian horror. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a few others that maybe could have come in here, but I I like it. I think most of the stories are great, but I agree there's probably a couple that mm. not as not as strong. Yeah, but a fun time. Yeah, and I'm really glad I read it, and I would recommend it to others, children or otherwise. Yeah, good little bit of Christmas themed fun. Now we didn't get a lot of questions, Liz, mm. but we did get a couple. But, I mean, it's it's proportional to the length of the book, yeah. so I think it's great. That makes sense. Yeah, I agree. It's totally reasonable. But we should answer the questions that we did get. All right. So our first question comes from Craig via Discord. Taking the pie and the Wenceslas stories, do you prefer these modern day editions or those uncovered by the Harkins? I prefer the older ones. They're more typically Terry references, named specifically that you'll get or not, as Mark described on the recent 40th anniversary episode. Maybe it's because I am a civil engineer. I love the IKB references. However, it wasn't nice at all to see the monster that was Jay Savile in the Wenceslas story. Even so, the older works are more palatable for a not-so-young anymore reader. So I didn't recognize the Savile reference. Well, he's not in the version in this story. He's in the the one that I mentioned, the, um, mm. uh, what was it? How Good King Wenceslas went pop for the DJ's Feast of Stephen. So that's like, you know, it's trying to be cool, and that's the one that's got the... Jimmy mm. Savile reference in it. There's a character called Jim Sponge, which is meant to feel like him, but it's not him. So, yeah, that is a bit, oh, no. 
Um, mm. But, you know, I mean, it's just because he was a pop culture character at the time. Unpleasant, no. I, I can't compare, actually, because I haven't read the other ones, so I'm going to have to put a pin in that one. That's fair enough. The Wenceslas one is interesting because it feels like it was just sort of updated to be a bit more modern and have a few more, like I, like I kind of jokingly said before. Like a hydrogen station rather than a petrol station? Yeah, or Yeah, to like feel groovy. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, it actually it reminds me, it feels quite a bit like the update to the carpet people in some ways. Like it's, it is more arch. The ending is different. It's a little more clever and it feels a bit more adult. Like I think kids could still read it and enjoy it, but it, it feels like there's more stuff in it for adults than in uh, the original, the earlier one, because it, the ones in the Father Christmas's fake beard collection are generally speaking earlier versions. They're from the Bucks Free Press. They're from the 60s, whereas the ones in A Stroke of the Pen are from the 70s. They're written for the Western Daily Press at a time when Pratchett's not working there. He's working for a different paper, which is why they're under a pseudonym. So those are newer versions. And the newer version of the King Wenceslas story, I mean, it's different. But I mean, it's but it's basically, I mean, the, the broad strokes of it are the same. We'll do an episode about A Stroke of the Pen, I think, because it's a really interesting slice of Pratchett history. But yeah, it's it's got it's kind of got the same jokes. It doesn't really have the same jokes. It's got it's that thing that Pratchett does in the disc world where he kind of comes back to the same joke, but he tries a different version of it. So, for example, in this version, when they get lost and the page gets up on his shoulders, he's like, what does the sign say? It says reduce speed now. And they're like, oh, we're on a road. This could be dangerous. And they still fall into a hole. So it's basically the same. And it's kind of similar with the pie story where he brings in, yeah, Isambard Kingdom Brunel to sort of build the giant pie. But there's a different sort of setup. But the basic story is the same. So it's kind of just reiterating on the same idea. Look, I, I, there is a simplicity to these earlier versions that are kids stories. And I, yeah, I, I think I probably slightly prefer those, but they're just different. They're not necessarily better. They're just different, and you'll have a preference for one or the other if you read them, I think. I will say that philosophically, and there will always be exceptions and there's not a there's not a black and white answer to it, I like the idea of the original one, if it was published, being kept mostly as it was, like maybe a few tweaks here and there to like a sentence or so, but mm. for the most part left as it is. I don't know if it's because it ties in with my – I like sewing vintage garments and things like that, and – I think like they do act as a time capsule. So yeah. the idea of updating one of your stories like five, 10, 20 years later, more than on a sentence or just like tightening level in some ways does a disservice to your work. But again, there's different reasons for doing it. And so it's not a philosophy that would apply universally. It might wouldn't even necessarily apply universally across this collection. But I do think that there is a benefit if, and I, again, I say this about published works, works that have been out in the public mm. already of just letting them be for the most part, because that is who you were at a certain time. That is how you thought, that is how you wrote. And for an author of Terry Pratchett's level, I think there's a benefit to writers, readers of seeing that, that change in style, quality ideas. I guess I would probably say, having not read them, I would base purely on my own philosophies, prefer the older ones. Mm. Or have both side by side. Because again, that's that progression thing that you're seeing. Like, what did he want to change like 10, 20, 30 years later? And I think there's a benefit to seeing both if that was something that he really wanted to do. Yeah. So that doesn't quite answer your question. But in terms of why I come to, 
to Terry Pratchett's works and to something like this, if he felt strongly about it, I'd like to see both, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely see where you're coming from. The thing that's interesting to me is that it's kind of a unique, like that process of him being able to republish a story in a new version is itself a time capsule of how writing used to work back then. Like he was writing these short stories for Mm. publication in newspapers, which people didn't keep. So, you know, people would read the story, the newspaper would go in the bin or get wrapped around some fish and chips and everyone would forget about it. And so three years later, if he wanted to, you know, publish another Christmas themed story and he's like, oh, I don't really have a totally original idea. He's like, oh, I quite like that story I wrote three years ago but I reckon I could do it better now. I'm going to have another crack at it. And he takes it out and he rewrites it. And, you know, this was the 60s and 70s. Like, he would have been writing on a typewriter. So it's not like he got out the Word document and just edited it. He would have had to rewrite the whole thing, having read the old version of it. And so I think that's an interesting element of the history of his writing, is that these short stories were published in a way that was ephemeral. Like nobody assumed that you'd be able to read one of these stories many years later. And indeed, we know that most of these stories you couldn't read until quite recently. There was only a small number collected in a blink of the screen from this period. And, you know, it's only in the last decade that they've been published in these collections. So I think that's an interesting thing and that now they're collected. Well, now it's a different story, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And also because it was pre-internet days, you know, like they weren't published on a website and then somebody, you know, downloaded them or put them on the old space web or whatever. They kind of vanished and, you know, you couldn't read them or access them. So I guess he felt like I can do whatever I want with it. It's my story and nobody can read it unless I publish (laughs) it again anyway. So yeah, bit of a different circumstance to if you're writing short stories now, where even if they're published in a periodical, they generally end up immortalized somewhere, don't they? Yeah. Maybe I'm just being greedy for content. I would just love to see all of them, <laughs> all the ones that he was happy to see published at any point in his career altogether, because that is an interesting progression. Yeah. There don't seem to be many stories that he absolutely did not want to be reprinted. I think the significant one is like his second ever published story, which is uh, Night Flyers. Um, which we'll probably talk about at some point because I think it is significant because it's basically the only story ever wrote that wasn't comedy, certainly the only published one. And it's so different from his other stuff. Uh, I have read it. You can find it online, like the science fiction magazine that was published in has been like, you know, archived on the internet. We've posted a link to that before, but I'll put it in the episode notes, but we will cover it at some point. That's the only one that he seems to have refused to have reprinted because it doesn't appear in any of the collections. Whereas even his first published Mm. short story, which he complains about and, you know, he talks about in the introduction to it, like sticking his fingers in the ears, pretending he can't hear you reading it because he's embarrassed by it. He still put it in the book, like presumably wouldn't be there if he didn't want it to be there. But maybe he felt like as his first published story, he kind of had to include it. I don't know. Yeah, there's potentially a sense of that. It'd be good to know. Mm. Um, Great question. Like really good food for thought. Yeah. So we'll move on to our next question. Also a great question. Very fun. And I'm not sure what my answer is going to be. Um, let's, let's let you hear it first. So this one comes from Sven via Discord. Since it is the festive season, what dish can't be missing on a good Australian Christmas barbecue or whatever you folks do during the middle of the summer? Oh, great question. <laughs> yeah. I, this is weird because, you know, like it's changed for me since I've been vegetarian these last how many years. Almost about around the same amount of time as I've been doing the podcast, I think, actually. I think prawns. Certainly in my lifetime, like when I was a kid growing up, I, I grew up in a, a prawn fishing town, like that and, and oyster farming. So we'd always have f- fresh prawns at Christmas. 
not least because when I was little, my granddad was still alive. He loved them. So that was a big, big thing for me. And I still think about that as a very Christmassy thing. But also the cold collation, like the collection of cold meats, um, which is not really the mm. barbecue, but I, we, we never really did a barbecue for Christmas. That wasn't really our thing. So, uh, I don't really think of a barbecue as very Christmassy, although I know a lot of people do it, but yeah, the kind of collection of just heaps of cold food and then the absurd desire to eat a Christmas lunch that includes like all the things that you would eat. On, at a Christmas dinner in, the, in England, which is nonsense. Like, don't eat that in the middle of summer. It's too much food for starters. But, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think for me, prawns and the, and all the cold cheeses and, uh, you know, rolled up bits of ham and, um, all that kind of stuff. Even though most of that I don't yeah, eat the, anymore. <laughs> now it's all the finished the foods. The deli butter. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also, it's also all the finished foods now for me. That's, that's what I think of as Christmassy. How about you? What kind of foods? Oh, what kind of foods? Kind of uh, food, the finished foods, though. Ooh, I am going to get, I don't know. I won't remember the names because, you know, I eat them once a year and then I don't, I don't think it's, they're not so good that I think about them all year. Although once Christmas starts, I do start to think about them because I, oh, I'm looking forward to that. My partner always talks about Finnish cuisine as being famously bland and like they wish they'd seen a spice at some point. But I, I actually quite enjoy them. So there's kind of like a, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like a stewed sort of sweet potato. That one's quite good. It's a potato one that's quite similar. There's a lot of things that I can't eat because they're meaty. And the the baked goods. Dad makes the Christmas stars. They're delightful. With a little bit of jam in the middle. Ooh. And really good gingerbread. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Yeah, gingerbread's good. But that's not very Australian. What what's what's on your Australian Christmas table is? As I said, like, I'm, family's not super into Christmas, so I don't have a, a, my, my day is ruined if I don't see this food on there. Yeah. Um, kind of thing. But I mean, growing up, we would go to a family friend's house regularly. And so we had sort of foods that we eat every year that were always really fun. And I guess this is one that I just think about as associated with Christmas, but it's very specifically associated with the one that we would do because it was like the kid's job to assemble this, mm. like this starter course every year and we get older each year and we'd get more like elaborate with it. But basically it was a mango and avocado sort of dish really. And you just sort of had to fan out the avocado and put the mango in a thing. And it was very simple, but we took a lot of pride in making it look nice and then also making it look silly depending on what level of teens we were at. And it's quite good on a hot day as well because they're all cold, which is great. So like Mango and avocado are surprisingly good mm. together. Uh, I'll see if I can dig up a picture from somewhere. But um, another one for generally like this sort of time of year, as a very salad-resistant person, I um, hate saying this, but various salads as well. I remember one time I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be good to have like the ingredients of a sandwich but without the bread like at some point because I was like, Cause sometimes you just there's too much food. And I was like, oh, that's a salad, isn't it? That's just That's just a salad. <laughs> a sandwich without the bread <laughs> having invented that again but <laughs> i think a good one is a potato salad which is always like i'm always thrilled to see a potato salad at a at a barbecue that's great because it goes with everything yeah and most people can eat like if, depending on what sort of dressing you put on it like you can get a good vegan dressings for that too so it is something that like usually most people can have mm. and there's also lots of like and again i'm loath to say this fun and delicious salads that you can make so <laughs> Because it is so hot, it is good to just have something leafy or cold that can go with the other things and sort of offset 
um, the, the lots of food or the lots of hot food you're eating as well. So there's a great one that is like spinach, pear and feta, which is a really nice salad, like very simple, mm. but delicious. Yeah, I've had that. That's really good. Yeah. Greek salads. Like, yeah. So I can't believe I'm saying this, but salads, <laughs> various salads. <laughs> oh, a good salad is a wonder to behold. I'm now thinking I want to do, I've had one before and I have never made one, but now I want to make one of those salads that's got dried cranberries in it for that little bit of sort of sweetness. And it feels quite Christmassy because cranberry sauce is a bit of a Christmas thing. So I think that'd be nice. Zombie salad. Zombie salad. Linger salad. So I'm just naming cranberry songs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm with you. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Linger food. There we go. We got Yay, that. nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mm. All right. That's great. I don't know that we can top that. Can we top that? <laughs> I, I don't think I can. My, I think my brain has been like, nope, we've done it. We've done it. That's it. We're done. <laughs> we've done it. I got, look, I do want to ask you one question though. Mm. Do you have any fun Christmas traditions like of your own that you still do or that you used to do and you kind of miss now? I don't know if it's like a fun Christmas tradition. Like I did quite enjoy doing the round. Like we have the same routine every year. Like we'd wake up, we would have breakfast, we'd do the presents, we'd go to a family friend's house for like the cold meat platter, hanging out, mm-hmm. adults drinking wine thing. Then we'd go to another family friend's house for Christmas lunch and everyone would bring like a significant dish. Like someone would bring the ham. Everyone would chip in to do something. So it's not just one person providing for everyone. So I quite liked that. But um, my favorite Christmas memory perhaps is the triumphant like giving of a gift without them realizing what, what it was. My dad had asked for a long like... It's a telescopic thing for like fishing, like with a hook on the end, but not a dangerous hook, like just to, to grab stuff from far away. And Gaff hook. Yeah. So like he's one of the people that like, you ask him what he wants for Christmas and he's like, I will give you a very specific answer and you can get that thing if you like, but no pressure. And telescopic long hook thing, very obvious what it is when it's wrapped. And you sort of yes. want him to have a surprise of, am I getting it or not? Um, so while I bought it and while he was out, I rigged up a thing with rubber bands and paper clips to put it under the dining room table where we ate every night. And so for like two or three weeks, he'd be eating dinner over the top of his Christmas present. And I had just wrapped a note saying where to find it under the tree. And I was like, because I thought he was subtle at 12, whatever. I was like, oh, do you reckon you'll be getting a fishing hook for, for I don't know, for Christmas? I don't know if we couldn't find it. It's been very difficult. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so when he opened it, like the, the present, um, under the tree that said look under the dining table and he found it it was just i think that's one of my favorite like success stories <laughs> in my <laughs> he probably cottoned on that he was getting it but yeah i don't think he knew he was eating over it the whole time so it's not quite what you asked but yeah how about you do you have any favorite christmas traditions that is good though i think it is a christmas tradition to wrap presents so that someone cannot guess what is inside mm. i think that is great but i didn't i used to um look one of my favorite ones and this kind of alludes to uh, Rob Wilkins' little introduction in this book, actually, because uh, we didn't mention this, but he writes in it that this book is dedicated to Terry's readers across the globe who waited patiently until December 25th each year to unwrap the latest Pratchett. And uh, my brother was one of those people. I don't know that he waited patiently to unwrap it, but I used to get him the new Pratchett book for Christmas because I used to buy books for my whole family. That was the present that I would get for them, which was a challenge. Like, you know, my brother didn't read anything except Pratchett, so I just would buy him whatever the new one was. It was very helpful that he always wrote at least one book every year for a long time. And then I, I would find something for my mum, who's not a big reader, but I would find something that spoke to her interests. And I think the greatest success I had there was 
Dawn French's memoir. She really loved that. So that was a good, that was a big success. So yeah, I would, I would buy books for everyone. I love doing that. Don't really do that anymore. And watching, uh, when it was a thing, watching the Doctor Who Christmas special was a big one for me. Lifelong Doctor Who nerd. And it coming back and not only coming back, but doing a big thing at Christmas every year. I was like, hey, this is great. And then they stopped doing them a few years ago. They started doing New Year's Eve specials instead, which I was like, that's not the same. No. <laughs> this year there will be one again. Nice. Very exciting. And we'll get a new doctor for Christmas. That's very exciting too. So I'm excited. It's going to be good. I think we're Christmased out, um, which is terrible because it's not even Christmas yet. <laughs> but it will be. It will be soon. Mm. And look, I think I feel like we have a bit of a present for our listeners coming up, Liz. Mm. Would you agree? I feel like it's a present for us and our listeners because it's very exciting. It is very exciting. So we previously mentioned on the podcast Tiffany Aching's Guide to Being a Witch. Big news in the practice scene, but this is a new book. It's uh, an in-universe book. It's a guide to witchcraft written by, inverted commas, uh, Tiffany Aching with annotations from several other characters. And it's written by Rihanna Pratchett and Gabrielle Kent. Who are our guests who we'll talk to about that book, Liz? Oh, it's actually just us again talking. Like, no, <laughs> sorry, I'm just laughing at my own joke. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? Do no, it. Um, as you might have guessed, it is Gabrielle and Rihanna are going to come onto our podcast and discuss their book, which is very exciting. And this is a special episode. Like, I think this won't be a normal episode for us where we discuss the book in great depth. We will do an episode about that book like that with another guest at some point. This is going to be more of a, an interview. And you may have heard Rihanna and Gabriel recently on other podcasts. They were on uh, The Truth Shall Make You Fret. And I think they're going to be on another one of the Pratchett podcasts as well, probably before you hear from us. Uh, but we would like you to send us your questions that you'd like us to put to them. Uh, now, they mostly want to be talking about the new book, but, you know, we can also ask about their writing careers, about anything that seems vaguely on topic. Do send in your questions. We would love to ask them for you. It'll be yeah, grand. Absolutely. Um, so free questions, please use hashtag Pratchat74. Uh, or you can email us chat at pratchatpodcast.com. But whatever way you use, get your questions in real soon by the 15th of December, because that's when we'll be recording with Rihanna and Gabrielle. Can't wait. And thank you, of course, for not only sending in questions, but for listening to the show. As we say nearly every month, there's not really much point in us doing this show uh, if you're not listening to it. So thank you very much. Um, thank you to all of you who support the show. If you want to support the show, you can do that by telling your friends about it. Um, or if you like, you can support us monetarily by going to our website, Pratchett podcast.com and looking at the support us page where you can subscribe for as little as two bucks a month to get access to some bonus content. And as a little Christmas present, I have got a little backlog of some extra bonus bits. So subscribers, you'll be able to listen to those quite soon. I hope But Liz, thanks. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> <laughs> you're so welcome as well. And listener, until next time, prod year diddle <laughs> You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux and Ben McKenzie. That's me. Pratchett is produced and edited by me on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. Our music is by David Ashton. You can find us on all the big social media platforms, but since they're at risk of being destroyed by rich weirdos, you can always listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat73. 
Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.